Okay, well, let's go ahead and uh, review this quiz. I know a couple of you just walked in, but uh, we'll go ahead and grade this. You can just sort of follow along as we talk about it here. Number one, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is primarily concerned with... Yes, C, correct. Sanctifying influence in the life of the believer, correct. Uh, so we can, couldn't be a matter of his location uh, because the Holy Spirit is everywhere. The idea of a, sort of an existential drawing near so that you feel his nearness is really not a concept that's promoted really in the Scripture. The drawing near uh, that takes place with God is not a, a locative thing that he's... You know, he's, he is distant and is close at hand, but rather uh, he comes near in blessing. So so the, the idea is not a sort of an existential feeling of his nearness, but rather he comes uh, with his graces and, and gives us grace. Uh, so it's a rather objective thing. Uh, disclosure of revelation to the believer is not uh, something that would be occurring today. Uh, that did occur, but it would not have been connected with the indwelling work, but rather with what we call a prophetic anointing. So it leaves us then with C, that it's the Spirit's sanctifying influence, that is his, his manifest influence in the life of the believer in us advancing in holiness. Okay, so that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Number two, Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Spirit. That's true, and we were sort of in the middle of that discussion. We still have a little bit of that left to discuss. But yes, the answer is true, for uh, largely for theological reasons, but some exegetical reasons along the way as well. We'll review them just here in a minute. Then number three, when David asked God not to take his spirit away from him in Psalm 51.11, he was asking God what? Not to take away the joy of the salvation. There we go. So he, he was asking him that the same thing wouldn't happen to him that happened to Saul. Right. And Saul was, what was taken away from him was the right to rule the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tricked you by not putting the right answer in there. So, uh, but, uh, but didn't it also say, do not take away the joy of my salvation. It does. I mean, he, that is a request that he had, that he makes, but that's not what he's asking for when he asks not to take your Holy Spirit from you. Okay, well then I'll, I'll, I'll give you half credit. Okay, so the answer is E, none of the above. It should be the theocratic anointing or the, the right to rule uh, the uh, the ability to rule and right to rule that was granted to the Judahite kings. Okay? So, all my tricky questions, strike again. Okay, so we are, we've just a page left on our discussion. We didn't quite get to my goal last time. Uh, but uh, we were finishing up this question about uh, in dwelling in the Old Testament, and there was a, there's been a suggestion within dispensational life, the idea that there are differences between uh, the, the the epochs of administration uh, in the uh, in the history of 
mankind and history of uh, the history of uh, biblical history. And uh, some would suggest that, uh, that as we know, there are differences as you go from the Old Testament to the New. Everyone agrees with that. Uh, that one of the new things in the New Testament was the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is argued on a couple of bases. One is that there are relatively few uh, Old Testament references to indwelling. We did point out a couple of them. But our larger argument was theological, that in order for someone to advance in holiness and advance in his sanctification, no matter what period of history you lived in, you had to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, when you are become a believer, you experience union with Christ, uh, you, become the, you become the spirit man, and uh, that's, that's our description of regeneration. Uh, we, we, we become new creatures in Christ. So regeneration uh, involves the impartation of the Holy Spirit necessary, necessarily in order to make us what we are in Christ. Uh, we are no longer what we were, that is, the man without the Spirit, the one in Adam. But now we are the Spirit man, the pneumatikos, the man in whom is the Holy Spirit, the the, uh, the 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 man in Christ, and there really is no in between, uh, whereby one might be freed from the power of sin and yet not have uh, the the new nature uh, that uh, is is affected in us by the Holy Spirit. So theologically, it's necessary that we have to have the Holy Spirit in order to advance in our holiness. So and and then we also said there's some exegetical suggestions that perhaps we don't have indwelling in the Old Testament, and that is, uh, we, we pointed out then in our, in our closing minutes, uh, that in the Old Testament there were occasions where the Holy Spirit would come and go, uh, giving r- rise to the theory that the Holy Spirit's indwelling work was sort of hit and miss. Sometimes he was there and sometimes he wasn't. Uh, but as we pointed out, uh, each occasion where we see the Holy Spirit leaving one and coming on someone, it wasn't in, in, in reference to their sanctification or growth and holiness, but rather uh, the, the right and the ability uh, to rule the nation, whether as a judge, Holy Spirit comes on Samson, comes upon Gideon and others of the judges, the Holy, the Holy Spirit comes upon David, well, he came upon Saul, left Saul, not because he lost his salvation, but rather because he lost this right to rule and the attendant ability to rule, and it divests, it, is, it, 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 comes, and it comes upon David in the immediate uh, preceding verse. And then we see it uh, uh, come on a few of the kings of the uh, Old Testament, presumably all of them, although it's not mentioned. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit leaves in that dramatic moment, uh, in the uh, in the Old Testament, when in Ezekiel, uh, when the uh, priests have their backs backs turned to the temple, uh, worshiping other gods, and the Shekinah raises up rises up out of the uh, out of the uh, the temple and and drifts over to the Mount Olivet and disappears into the sky uh, and does not return until we find the Holy Spirit then uh, comes down upon Jesus at his baptism. 
And it's at that point that he receives this right to rule and uh, the attendant skills necessary to that end, and his public ministry begins uh, immediately after that time. And so he is the last of the Davidic kings. Uh, He is the the Messiah figure. And so he is the one who, uh, upon whom this this, uh, theocratic anointing rests permanently. Okay? And so the coming and going of the Holy Spirit that we find in the Old Testament, we find, is not really connected with the indwelling work of the Spirit, uh, but rather this theocratic, uh, I, I've been using this word theocratic, theos, God, crassus, to rule. So the, 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 the ruling of the, uh, the, the theocratic kingdom here as uh, God's vice regent. Okay? Any questions up till that point? We have one key text left to look at, but uh, anything up till this point in the view? Well, let's look at one last verse here, and this is one that's uh, perhaps caused the most trouble uh, for those who are trying to maintain and dwelling in the Old Testament, and that is a verse here in John chapter 14, pair of verses actually, John 14, 16 to 17. And we find out, we'll just read that there, I will ask the Father, he says to the disciples, uh, and he will give you another counselor, another comforter, and he will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And some have argued that the Holy Spirit was with believers in some external sense in the Old Testament. I heard, like I said, I mentioned one of my professors years back uh, uh, mentioned that he must have sat on the shoulder whispering in the ear, right? Or some have said uh, the, the Holy Spirit was in the temple. Shekinah that we just mentioned so that's where the Holy Spirit was and so in order to be uh, sanctified in the Old Testament you'd come routinely uh, to the temple in order to get your fix of the Spirit that would last you the next four months until you came again so the idea was that he was with them among them but not inside of them Okay, but after a period of time here Jesus predicts he will conduct an internal ministry in believers. He was with you in your midst and now will become inside of you. Uh, but I say several several factors mitigate against this conclusion. Actually, there's more than I even, even put out here. Syntactically, this doesn't seem to be the point that Jesus is making. Um, he doesn't use a contrastive conjunction. Yeah, he lives with you and will be in you. You would expect sort of a but if, it, if he was making a contrast, but a simple chi here. The, the tenses he uses probably are not the best ones to create this contrast. Uh, he has been with you and shall be in you would be a better way to create a contrast, but no, that's not the case either. Uh, also, uh, we find that uh, if you have a Greek New Testament, uh, the uh, I say UBS here, the United Bible Societies, 
uh, edition of the of the Greek New Testament, sort of the standard Greek text. The editors uh, actually looked at this and said there's a textual variant, and up until just a few years ago, it was, he lives with you and is in you. So the, the, there's not even a switch to the future. Now that has been changed in a recent edition, the fourth and fifth editions have that. Nonetheless, there's actually a serious textual problem in the first in, 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 in the first place. But also then, we find down in verses 16 and 23, uh, we, we find that the future ministry of the Holy Spirit continues to be a with ministry. Okay, so you go down to verse 23, we find, for instance, he who hates me, Yeah, I must have the wrong. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay. If anyone loves me, he will obey, obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, if there's going to be this massive change, he should have said in at this point. But no, he says that the ministry with is really the same as the ministry in. Okay. So theologically, so, so syntactically, there's just a lot of things that are off. There is a with that perhaps could be contrasted with an in, maybe. But there's all kinds of other factors here, the conjunction use, the verb tenses, the, the, the use of the, the same prepositions elsewhere in the text don't really point to some sort of a strong contrast here. And of course, theologically, a reference to indwelling is unlikely. Uh, though there are there's actually two groups I'm 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 speaking to. There's a new group that call themselves the Progressive Covenantalists. They're sort of a reformed group that's sort of making some overtures to the dispensational community. And they see the Holy Spirit confined to the temple and thereafter dispersed. But we have to note that the Spirit left the temple six hundred years prior. That being the case, he isn't really with the disciples. He's, he's, he's left. He left 600 years previously, so it doesn't really seem to work. More significantly, though, as we noted above, the continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit is an integral part of the new man in, is, such, is such that his influence can never be temporary or remote. I'm not sure exactly what an external ministry of the Holy Spirit actually is. Uh, we've said that indwelling is a matter of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself by influencing us towards holiness. Is that an internal ministry, an external ministry? It's, it's the ministry of the Spirit. The, the, the location doesn't seem to be uh, in view here. If a person without the Spirit in the New Testament cannot please God, and they can't in Romans 8, cannot properly appraise and submit to the scripture, and they can't, 1 Corinthians 2 says that, and does not belong to God without the Holy Spirit, and Romans 8 says that, by what mechanism, how could the Old Testament saint accomplish these things? And the fact is, uh, the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint are exactly the same here in, in with reference to this work of the Holy Spirit in indwelling. Now, some of you may be sitting here saying, why in the world are we spending so much time talking about this? Well, it's, 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 it's rather interesting that uh, this, this view sort of had a stranglehold on you know, our 
in our broad circle of churches, fundamentalism, uh, conservative, even some conservative evangelicalism. This this idea of no indwelling in the uh, in the, uh, in the in the Old Testament sort of had a stranglehold on our movement, and so it's one of these things where uh, those who have sort of grown up with this, uh, I have it, it's it's one of those occasions where you have to sort of have to unteach it. <laughs> and so I spend a little time trying to unteach this idea, and then to affirm uh, what I understand the biblical understanding to be. Now, if it's the first time you've actually considered this question you might think we're spending an inordinate amount of time on this, which I, I understand. But uh, perhaps uh, you've, you've come in with this conception uh, that the Holy Spirit did not indwell Old Testament believers. And so I uh, do want to spend a little bit of time unteaching uh, before we, before we, uh, as we, as we teach the uh, correct understanding. So perhaps it gives you a sense of why I'm doing this. And then finally, contextually, we observed above, Christ does not seem to be outlining a new way of sanctification. That's, he's not trying to say, this is the way you were sanctified in the Old Testament, and it was a, and it was a, a limited kind of a thing. It was a deficient way. Now you're going to have a new way of sanctification that is much more efficient. That does not seem to be Christ's point at all here. Rather, if there is something new here to be understood, it's probably... A reference then to what we've already discussed earlier in this class is preparation of his apostles for their upcoming task in establishing the New Testament church, especially their task of completing the New Testament canon. And so if that being is the case, then John 14, 17 really doesn't have anything about a changing formula about how the Holy Spirit operates in ordinary believers, but it's actually something that's restricted. Uh, to the apostles, and I'm inclined that way. So I, I, I see John 14, 16, and 17, of course, as important verses, but I don't think uh, they teach that there was not indwelling in the Old Testament and then is indwelling after uh, the departure of our Lord at his ascension. So any questions? Yes. Are there any uh, implications to well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I've I've observed that those who do not see indwelling in the Old Testament, but do see indwelling in the in the New Testament, take a, have a very diminished view of regeneration. Um, there's there, there's a uh, there's a and. An, Emphasis, perhaps even an overemphasis on justification. God declares us to be righteous and treats us as such. But regeneration sort of gets lost. This whole idea that the Holy Spirit has come and made us new and given us innately this capacity to please God. Okay, and so that, that's I think is the practical implication. Uh, if you have this view of Indwelling that, eh, take it or leave it. You're, you can you can do this. Then regeneration sort of becomes less important. I don't know if that makes sense. Does that follow? It, it this will come perhaps come back when we talk about sanctification, uh, because uh, that is there's a, there's a lot of questions to what the holy spirit is doing for us in sanctification and people are all over the map on that 
Um, and uh, what I'd like to say is that sanctification really has a lot to do with the fact that we have a new nature, that we are we are the spirit man, we are we are united with Christ, and that gives us the capability. That's the energy we have to obey God, not some sort of you know, the Holy Spirit swoops down and gives me energy for the event. But rather, we have a, an ongoing, sustained union with Christ that is cultivated and develops slowly over time until we become more mature in Christ. So what would happen to an Old Testament regenerate believer who Christ has come and resurrected, but they aren't witness to it, haven't heard it from the apostles, and they die in that state. But what, what, nothing. I always wondered what. Where's the cutoff line in that? Well, yeah, and, and, you know, you know, we have those examples of the folks in Ephesus. Is it uh, Ephesians? Or in in Acts nineteen? Is that it? Acts chapter nineteen. Um, there, there's these, there's these, these folks that uh, Paul comes stumbles across in Ephesus, and they're preaching the baptism of John. Yeah, and. He said, where, where have you been? You know, he said, uh, you don't know what happened? And they didn't. They hadn't. They were somehow unaware of current events and did not know that there was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that had taken place at Pentecost, this tremendous event. So they were still preaching the, 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 the repentance because your Messiah is coming, because that's what John had been teaching. Um, and so they aren't even aware of this of this new coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and and they're they're fine now. Now, Paul baptizes them, and apparently they exhibit some sort of evidences of the Holy Spirit's activity in in them. Uh, but uh, it, it's not as though they were somehow, you know, vulnerable for those those years uh, while they were preaching faithfully the Gospel of John. Now, what's the cutoff? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, yeah, I, I know there's. But I always wondered what happens to the people that are in that. Yeah, there does there do seem to be transitions that take place between the uh, be, between the dispensations where you get you sort of get an opportunity to sort of catch up with the new revelation. So, I I, I don't think there's any sort of vulner, but we couldn't be in that same situation today if we were. Happened to go out still preaching the gospel, the, the the repentance of John and the baptism of repentance. Obviously, there's been plenty of revelation. There's no excuse, no reason why somebody could possibly be in that situation today. Uh, but for several years, maybe even a couple decades, uh, that was the case here. Uh, but uh, that window obviously has passed us by now. Yeah, there's no way of. There's no way of coming to Christ in the old ways once the new way. You know, I mean, if, if there's if, if if there's if there's new revelation, you have to you have to you have to come to grips with the new revelation. You can't just rely on the old revelation alone. Other thoughts? Okay, well, let's turn the page here. And talk about resultant works of the spirits in dwelling, and uh, I'm going to subsume a number of activities of the Holy Spirit here under indwelling, because the in, the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us assurance, 
He illuminates us. He seals us, gives us eternal security. Uh, he sanctifies us. So all of these are, are things that occur to us because the Holy Spirit is manifesting his presence in us in this new way since our regeneration. Okay? And so those are the topics that we want to speak to uh, tonight and uh, actually the next uh, next week. And then uh, the following week, I'm not going to be here, just to sort of let you know, uh, two weeks from tonight, I'm not going to be here and Dr. Combs is going to uh, fill in. Uh, he's something of, a, of an expert on uh, spirit filling, wrote a uh, scholarly paper on it, and so has some very helpful insights on that. So he's going to take the time. Uh, to talk about that, uh, I only have a I only have a little text box on that, so this will give him a chance to uh, expand upon that. Uh, but uh, uh, let's ramp up to that by talking about some of the other uh, works of the Holy Spirit. We'll start with the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, which I've said here is is tantamount to eternal security. Eternal security. Now, I say here, it's technically inaccurate to think of the Spirit's sealing ministry as a separate activity in which he expends energy to seal us, per se. Instead, the, whole, the, the New Testament describes the indwelling Spirit as himself being the seal of the believer, guaranteeing what is to come. Okay, Let's see if we can't see this. Uh, in fact, we're, we're not going to see the. In fact, the, the verb sealing doesn't appear. It's it's he is a seal, not that he seals. And I think that's that language is important to us. God set his seal of ownership on us by change that here by putting his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In fact, if you have a New Living Translation, it actually puts it that way. God set his seal of ownership on us by placing his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the Holy Spirit, who is manifesting himself in us by producing holiness and sanctification in us, then uh, is the, the guarantee then uh, that we will uh, persevere. And so we are sealed until the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5, God has given to us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That word deposit perhaps is a you, 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 perhaps you have a, a mental picture in your mind going to a, you know, go to a yard sale and you find some piece of furniture you want to put in your home and you don't have the cash to 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 buy it outright, and so you give them a $20 bill and say, hold on to this until I come back with a truck so I can pick this up. And and what that $20 is is a deposit. And, and the idea, of course, is that if you're cheap enough to go to yard sales, you don't want to give up that $20, right? So <laughs> And so you'll come back, and, and otherwise you forfeit it. And so the Holy Spirit then is something like that. He's a deposit. Uh, he's a down payment of what is to come. And of course, God the Father is not going to abandon the Spirit, of course. And so we have this guarantee that the Spirit is our deposit that guarantees that he'll come back. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Having believed, you are marked, were marked with him, 
in him with a seal, namely the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So the same idea here is that the Holy Spirit is the seal. Then uh, Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom, with whom you will you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so the idea here is, you know, with whom the seal was, by whom the seal was made. So the idea here, uh, you know, an envelope, for instance, is is sealed by the sender, but he's sealed with glue, right? It's sealed with glue. So the idea here is that we're not sealed by the Spirit, but we are sealed with the Spirit. He is he is the substance, then, of this eternal security we have. So he's the substance of the seal, the deposit, the guarantee, that, in fact, uh, our, our, our salvation will be completed at the resurrection. Now, if some, again, argue that the Old Testament sealing ministry by the Holy Spirit didn't occur uh, because there was no indwelling Holy Spirit or also, and also because Christ's death had not yet occurred. Okay? And uh, so, so the idea is, you know, the Old Testament saints could not have had, had, had eternal security like we do because Christ hadn't died yet and there would be this uncertainty. Uh, and what if Christ doesn't die? Uh, and so, so since Christ hadn't died, you know, in a, in a linear succession of events here, there was this sort of this question mark uh, by these Old Testament saints uh, about their about their salvation. Perhaps they couldn't have absolute assurance of their salvation because they didn't know for sure that Jesus was actually going to come and die for them. But there's a couple reasons here that that's wrong. Theologically, it it suggests some sort of a decretal uncertainty in God, that God could not seal a person based on Christ's atoning work because he wasn't sure it was going to happen. For for God, there was an absolute certainty that this would happen. Not only, I mean, I think on a a couple of levels. One, because he's sovereign and he can affect things, He, he he makes them absolutely certain. There's, there's no possibility that the prophecy that God has made concerning redemption could possibly not be fulfilled. So it suggests perhaps that God is not sovereign. But also, you know, we talked about this when we talked about the doctrine of God, the, etern- etern- the eternality of God. God is timeless. He, he exists. He stands outside of time. This is a little bit, you know, tough for us to sort of follow because we, you know, we're... we're we're time bound. We we live in a we live in a timeline, right? You know, things have happened yesterday. Things are happening today. Things will happen tomorrow, and we can't think about yesterday like we think about today, right? Because yesterday's done. Tomorrow is not yet, and now is where we're living. But God doesn't limit it like that. He stands outside of time. He's timeless. I mean, that's really the sense of eternity. He's the father of time. He stands outside time. And so for for God, there is not this 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 
this idea why it hasn't happened yet. Because for God, it has happened. I think you know, sometimes we talk about a prolific heiress in the uh, in the New Testament. God has seated us in the heavenlies. And you say, well, no, he hasn't seated us in the heavenlies yet because we're right here. We're still on the earthlies. Mm-hmm. And so, so we say, why, why did he put, put it in that sort of in that past tense? Well, uh, the, 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 the argument often is, well, this is a proleptic use of the aorist. It's so, he's so confident of it that he puts it in the past tense. But there, there's actually a theological component to the, to this explanation too, that in the mind of God, who stands outside of time, it, it, it is done. So he can say the, 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 the lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth. Okay? Because for God, past, present, future are all the same to him. It's not as though he's looking forward and saying, it hasn't happened yet uh, with the uncertainty that we have about the future. There's no uncertainty about the future in God. He knows all things past, present, and future by a, by a single, in a single moment of intuition. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, Genesis 16, I think it says that... Uh, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Yes. Does that bear that out? Yes, that, and, and, and that's, that's, that's coming here. Because, because the whole idea of what faith is, I think, is very important to us. Um, and that's, I think that's the second point, if I remember correctly. Um, so, we, we talk about... There's a... There's a, there's a there's a song. I, I don't know if you sing it here or not. But I'll take the risk and, and put it out here. There's a song. It's, it's the resurrection hymn, um, and it's uh, there, there's a there's a, a celebration of this of of that when Christ rises from the dead, he clothes faith in certainty. Okay, so it's, a, it's a clever little line, but it's actually theologically wrong. Okay. <laughs> Because faith is not something that's a maybe that's clothed in certainty when we see the resurrected Christ. Okay? Faith becomes sight, yes. Faith does not become certainty. Faith is certainty. Okay? Faith is the, the confidence of things hoped for, the, the evidence of things not seen. Okay? So when Abraham has faith, okay, there is not a question here as to, it, it's not a maybe. Right? You know, I think it might happen, but rather I, am, I have an absolute confidence that God is a God who keeps his word, and therefore it will happen. And so faith is, faith, faith is absolute confidence. Whether, it is, whether there's sight along with it is, is irrelevant, at least to the definition of faith. Okay, I'm not going to say it's irrelevant that you know, we see Christ, but, but the fact is it relative to the definition of faith sight is, is we, we don't we don't walk by sight right we walk by faith we don't need to see Christ in order to believe him if we do then we're in trouble right we can't see him right so when when Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness his faith was a, a confidence that was absolute it did not have to be rendered sight in order to actually mean something, and so that—that's—I I think this this is a fundamental misconception uh, to, to to say that uh, they were not sealed in the Old Testament. 
fundamentally misunderstands the faith of the <coughs> They died in faith, not having received the con- not having received the promise, and yet they died in faith, and now they are receiving the benefits of that faith uh, after the fact. But it doesn't. But it doesn't mean that their faith was anyhow. It's not as though the Old Testament saint had had a lesser faith than we do, because of the passage of time. Does that make sense? Does that follow? And so the idea that uh, Old Testament saints could not have had assurance of salvation because Jesus hadn't died and risen yet, I think is a false idea, false understanding of of what faith is. So, uh, ask a question if that doesn't follow. Hebrews 11 clarifies that pretty well. Yeah. Right. Verse 13. It goes goes on to admit that the the people of faith did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Right, yes. But it was that, but as much, they had the same kind of faith, the same, same substance of faith that we do. Correct. Very good. Okay, so that's the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. He guarantees that our salvation will continue to the end. Assurance is also a work of the Holy Spirit, and you say, well, isn't an eternal security and assurance the same thing? And I said, of course, they're related, uh, but they're not exactly the same thing. Uh, the, the sealing or the eternal security is an objective thing. Once you're saved, you're saved. Um, assurance is my confidence that that has happened to me, right? And so someone who is saved might lack assurance. Someone who is not saved might have false assurance, right? Okay, so even though they're related to one another, you can have a disconnect between eternal security and assurance in two different ways. So when we're talking about assurance, we're talking about my confidence that I'm actually an object of this work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the assurance of believer is his personal knowledge and certainty that he is in a state of grace and that his final destiny is heaven. See, I think that definition comes straight out of D.A. Carson. I didn't give him credit, so I'll give it credit here now. There's a key verse here that we want to look at here, and that's uh, Romans chapter 8, where the Holy Spirit is very tightly connected here with the assuring work of the Holy Spirit. It says here in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, But you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are, in fact, God's children. So this is the assurance that the Holy Spirit gives to us, that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And then he goes on to speak more about the sufferings that we endure. So let's talk about these verses and try and figure out what it is here 
that happens when the Holy Spirit bears witness with our with our spirit <coughs> that we are sons of God. Of course, there's basically two understandings. The one understanding is that there is a direct witness that, yeah, I'm probably being unfair by putting, but the Holy Spirit whispers into your ear that you are a son of God. You know, you 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 are in fact a Christian. Uh, because I'm doing this rather tongue-in-cheek, you probably have figured out that that's not how I understand these verses to, to operate. I don't think that that's what's going on here. But the question then is, how is it that the Holy Spirit communicates the assurance of salvation to us? It seems to me that the context of this passage lets us know that the assurance is mediated through the manifestation of the Spirit in our lives. Let's go all the way back here to verse, well, we could really almost go back all the way to verse 5 if we wanted to. No, to verse 1, honestly. Let's start at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what is, uh, on, on what the human, the, the, that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So here's this reference here to the Spirit. So if we're, live in accordance with the Spirit, if we're keeping in step with the Spirit, if we're led by the Spirit, then we set our minds on what the Spirit desires. Okay, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in leading us. We keep in step with the Spirit, um, and we set our minds on what He wants. The mind of the sinful man is death, the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Sinful man is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Okay, so this control by the Spirit, this being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in accordance with the Spirit, they're all, they're all of a sort here, it's all the same thing. You're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if, in fact, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. So... So if you if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, if you have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, then in fact the Holy Spirit is leading you, controlling you. Uh, you are submitting to him and you are keeping in step with him. And if anyone does not have this Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit in him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So this is the confidence that we have, that we are going to, in fact, uh, enjoy, enjoy the fruits of our salvation. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, not to the sinful nature, to live according to it, because if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Okay, so what is the source of our assurance here? Well, the fact that we're advancing in our holiness. And not on our own, of course. The Spirit is just laced throughout this whole passage. But because by the Spirit you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body. So as you advance in your holiness, you advance in your sanctification, as one by one those sins that dog you start to lose their grip and, and you succumb to them less frequently, this gives you assurance 
because you are led by the Holy Spirit of God and you received this spirit. Here's another one. Because you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. Here's another question. How do I know? How, how, how can I be confident that I'm a believer, that I'm, I'm one of these? How, how can I have this assurance of my own salvation? Well, here's a question we ask. When something terrible happens in life, what's, what's your response? Is it to immediately, you know, fall into worry and complaint, you know, lash out in anger. Well, we, we've got a little bit of a tension here. But if our immediate response is to say, Father, help me. And, and only you know whether that's an instinctive thing, right? You know, if you respond instinctively, Father, help me. Abba, Father. This is evidence of your salvation. This is proof. This, is, this should give you great confidence. Even in the terrible situation you might be going through, you have this confidence that actually grows during those times, right? That, in fact, I am a child of God because I called out to God in prayer instinctively because he is my father. Okay? So another manifestation then here of, of the Holy Spirit's work in assuring us. And then he goes on to say, if we are children of God, we'll also share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory. And so perhaps another question we might ask, am I, am I willing uh, to suffer for Jesus Christ? Whether that be a physical suffering or suffering of ridicule or whatever the case may be, you know, even the suffering of poverty. Because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if I am willing to do that, this should give me confidence that, in fact, I am a child of God. Now, some of these things can be feigned, but the fact is we've got a package here. If these kinds of things mark your life, that should give you confidence, assurance that, in fact... You know, you're in a state of grace, and your final destiny is heaven. And so, so this idea of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit is probably not something that he does directly to us. Dave, you're a Christian. But actually, you know, you're going through life, and you're exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, and you're going through trials, and you're, and you're succeeding, and, then, and, and you, you come out of it and say, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I have confidence in that. I have assurance of that because of the work of the Holy Spirit in me. Does that, does that follow? Does that make sense? Is that the same? Like in, I think it's in Luke and also in Matthew, where, or one of the, another book where Jesus is talking about like a tree bearing fruit and you know out of the abundance of the heart yeah. the mouth speaks. Is that that? Is that this same kind of evidence that you're talking about? Like in terms of I think the implications are the same. Yes. Yeah, if, if if someone has no fruit, then then the insur- then the assurance of salvation should begin to wane. I, 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 I I'm I'm of a mind that there is a sense in which that's a the the lack of assurance is actually something to get us back on the straight and narrow sometimes. Yeah, so so if you <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not one who says you've got to always have 100 percent assurance all the time. Because there are times when in your sanctification you blow it and you perhaps do it repeatedly. And I think there should be then, I wonder, wonder if I'm really even a Christian. 
probably if you're asking the question, you are, but, but, the, but the fact is, I think that's sort of a building mechanism here to get us back on the straight and narrow. You know, we, I, if I'm a Christian, I should be living other than I am right now. And it gives, and it gives you the encouragement and the, the, the impulse to live for Christ. Yeah. You know, I've recently read things that says all Christians are going to suffer for Christ. But in the, this country, I can't say I'm suffering the way... I mean, I don't feel like I've suffered... Yeah, in the sense that I'm, and and maybe your suffering is different than some of the suffering that others have done. But the fact is, if you're if you're if you're living out your faith, it's going to rub people. It, it, in fact, if I think that, that perhaps you know, if we if we say there's absolutely, I'm I'm experiencing no. I had a, I had a <coughs> professor in uh, actually, he was he was he was just an old missionary who had been spent his life in Africa, and he he wanted to retire among among people who were going into ministry. He retired up at Northland, and he would just sort of wander the hallways, uh, and uh, he would he would sometimes meet you in the uh, and said. How's the world treating you? And it was a trick question because he would say, "Yeah, great, great." He said, "Uh oh," you know, because because the fact is, if you if you're not if you're not facing even the slightest amount of persecution or the slightest amount of suffering uh, because of your faith, then perhaps you're not living out your faith as as aggressively as you need to. Now, I'm not 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 trying to be here, by the way. No, but, <laughs> but I guess I've experienced people that are like in my work environment. I've got people that are probably very religious, but Catholics are. Yeah. So we're not butting heads, or I'm not suffering because I believe different. Right, but if you share the gospel with them, it, it might end some friendships. Yeah. It, it 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 might end your employment. The fact that you're, you know, putting money into a substantial, putting a substantial amount of money into the offering plate on Sunday, probably means that you're not doing some of the things that some of your, some of your coworkers are doing that have to get the same pay rate that you do because yeah, definitely. And so I mean, it, I mean, it, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. you might say the suffering is perhaps not as intense, but you're. You, I could live in a bigger house. I yeah. Guess. Right. But, so there is there is some suffering. You will you will face persecution. I guess when uh, I look at suffering in the Bible, the suffering in third world countries, persecuted Christians, yeah. it's hard to right. Yeah, not everyone suffers the same way, but I think we all you know we all feel the pain of being a Christian sometimes. But like I say, just this this is a package here. So it's it, this these are just three you know, representative things. Yeah, I advance in holiness. I cry out to God. I suffer for Christ willingly. These are the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit is doing in me that give me confidence of myself. So, so you say, you know, I, I don't know if I've seen that one. Okay, you've seen the package, I hope, uh, and that that's that the whole package then gives you assurance. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say in First uh, Timothy three, uh, speaking of deacons, it says those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. 
we view this as a different uh, assurance or just not different but not not different in kind but perhaps different in quantity so yeah I mean I, I think you can grow in your assurance doesn't mean you don't have assurance when you're a fledgling Christian but you do have greater assurance hopefully as you as you advance in your sanctification and someone who has who's functioned in that role perhaps it's accelerated perhaps okay I say here that Old Testament saints had assurance is again debated by some because of the incomplete work of Christ but we've got pretty much the same arguments that we had earlier in this case it's not so much that God's decretal certainty is questioned but rather we have the capacity to view as certain what hasn't happened yet but as we've noted above here, while Old Testament saints sometimes expressed ignorance or uncertainty about the immediate afterlife, you know, the author of Ecclesiastes says, you know, I'm I'm not looking forward to dying because in the in the world in the world in Sheol, the place of the dead, there's no knowledge of the living, and so he's he's expressing some uncertainty and and some some anxiety perhaps about the afterlife but that's not the same as saying that he is uncertain of his final destiny um and and we see this in the uh, in 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 the, in the old testament scriptures job 19 i know that my redeemer lives and at the end he will stand upon the earth and even though my skin is going to be destroyed yeah, so there's going to be this window of, okay, I'm going to be sort of waiting until the, because I, I remain a, a temporarily linear creature that is waiting and waiting and waiting uh, for the completion of these things. And he knows his body's going to go to his to the grave and the skin's going to fall off. He puts it rather graphically there, and my skin is going to fall off. And you can just see the decay taking place. And yet he is not unconfident because in my flesh I shall see God and I will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Okay, so say so I know I'm going my body's going to be stuck in the ground and it's going to rot. Nonetheless, I have confidence that I'm going to be resurrected and have new skin and new eyes because I'm going to see him with my eyes. Me, not another. I'm going to see him with my own eyes. So, so he's expressing a great, great deal of faith and confidence uh, in his own resurrection, even though he's perhaps unaware of some of the specifics that are that are you know bound up in progressive revelation yet to be revealed in the New Testament. Psalm 49. David says, "God will redeem my life from Sheol." He will surely take me to himself. Okay, so as I understand it, Old Testament saints, when they died, went to this place of the dead called Sheol, sometimes called Upper Sheol. Maybe we could you know, get this idea here that you know, when, when one dies, there's Upper Sheol, a great gulf fixed, and Lower Sheol. Okay, so here, here, are, here are Old Testament saints 
who are in in in, uh, in upper shield are comforted, right? Remember the the rich man and Lazarus and Luke. So he's, he's, he's they're comforted in in Abraham's bosom. It's a, it's a place of comfort and rest. Remember Samuel goes down there and he's called up by the witch later on. And what does he say? Why have you why have you disturbed my rest? I was. <laughs> I was I was resting down there. I was I was I finally getting some some well deserved rest, and, and you, you you interrupted me. Why did you bring me back here? So it's a place of rest, a place of comfort, a place of all, where your needs are met. Okay, but on the other side, uh, there is what we sometimes call lower Sheol. So the Old Testament damned, represented in Luke by the rich man who says, I am in torment over here. And while there's a great gulf fixed, he's, he, he knows whether he can see or what. It's hard to know exactly here. But he, he recognizes that over there, there's Lazarus still sitting over there. And Lazarus had been sort of his lackey in life. So he said, you know, send, send Lazarus over with a little bit of water to touch my tongue here so I can be comforted in this place. And of course, the answer is no. You don't. You don't get that opportunity. Um, uh, he's 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 enjoying his rest, and you're enjoying you're you're experiencing your your tribulation. And so, this is the way it was until what happens? What 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 disrupts this scenario? The resurrection. Okay. So, what happens in the resurrection? Uh, as it's described in Ephesians, he, he, he goes down into the, the belly of the earth and leads captivity captives, leads, leaves captives in his train. Uh, we sing about that at Easter. Christ has opened paradise. So allowing then the Old Testament saints to escape this place and go to be, uh, with God in the presence of God as we do, uh, when we die. But, all this to say that these people, just because they were in this place of uncertainty, doesn't mean that they were uncertain about the final outcome. Job was not looking forward to this, just as the author of Ecclesiastes was not looking forward to dying and being in this place, waiting. Nonetheless, they still exhibit confidence that their final state is assured, that they will be uh, with their Redeemer. So uh, David says in Psalm 49, I will, God will redeem my life from Sheol. He will surely take me to himself. Isaiah 26, the description of the end times. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And I gave the uh, appeal there to Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. Uh, where the bones are, you know, the flesh comes upon them and they live, okay? And so uh, there's this confidence that in the Old Testament, Isaiah had it, Ezekiel had it, David had it, the author of Ecclesiastes had this confidence that even though there will be a period of uncertainty, the final condition of the, of the, of the redeemed is, is, is not in doubt. They have, they have assurance of their salvation. And then number two here is this whole question we, we addressed earlier, uh, the idea here that uh, that saints uh, have faith, and faith by definition uh, implies then uh, that uh, we have that we have confidence. It's not something that is that is completed by sight. Uh, faith does not need sight to 
actually be 100%. That's why I have that, have that hesitation with that one line in that one song, because faith does not become certainty. Faith becomes sight. Uh, and Lord hates the day when our faith becomes sight. Uh, but it's not a day when our, our, our faith becomes certainty. What we have now is certainty. Uh, don't, don't, don't imagine that just because you have faith, you have something less than certainty. Faith is certainty by definition. So uh, we have, just as the Old Testament saints, so we also have assurance, certainty, confidence that, in fact, uh, we are in a state of grace and that heaven is our final home. Okay? Thoughts on assurance? Or eternal security? Yeah. So, um, when we say that we have faith in Christ, so I think a lot of times we, we have in our mind an idea like of a specific gospel message, like that, you know, our formula, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we put our trust in faith again. What would be the, um, if we're an Old Testament saint, what would, they, what would be their gospel? The, the, the promises that God had given to them, the promises that they're, I mean, all, going all the way back to Genesis 3, mm-hmm. that there would be a seed who's going to, you know, take care of the sin problem, crush the head of the serpent, and, you know, be injured along the way, but crush the head of the serpent and, and, uh, solve the problem that Adam brought to all of us. And, and then reiterated throughout the Old Testament, the promises. So there, there really is, you would say there's no difference in, in the faith of the Old Testament and New Testament saying there's just that we have more information or that more. Right, yeah. Well, they had promises that would be fulfilled in Christ. We actually can look back and see Christ. So, so I, I suppose we have an advantage in that sense uh, because we actually, because of our temporal nature, you know, our linear, we, we can look back and, and see that Christ has died where they're looking forward and saying, okay, there's a promise out here. We're not sure exactly how it's going to happen, but the promise was still there. And so they had faith in God. So a Pharisee would know all these things but not believe them on the faith. Or Well, uh, the, 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 I guess the Pharisee is really relying on his own works to... But they were lost. But they would still understand. They would still understand it, but they weren't... They just, put, yeah, they could still understand it, but they weren't putting their faith in it. Yeah. Or believing it. And just by keeping the law with it. Right. Yep. Okay, very good. I'm afraid we're not going to be able to have time to get through this next section. So rather than start it and not get it done, let's go ahead and, uh, and cut, us, cut it off now. I think we're in good shape to get where we need to uh, next time. So uh, we'll go ahead and cut it off here and uh, give you an extra five minutes. <coughs>